Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octivian companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers and have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. On this episode, we are joined by author, investigator, and tuba maestro, Joshua Cutchin. <laughs> You didn't see that part coming, no, did you? I don't have it in front of me, so I didn't see it. <laughs> oh, that was good. So, yeah, no, uh, Josh was a hoot and a half. I'd almost get, I'd, actually, no, I'm going to give him two hoots. He's a hoot hoot. Whoa, a, t- a double hoot, hoot, hoot. That's an inside joke for a lot of people who won't get it, but I loved it. <laughs> Laugh at it. <laughs> wow, you're in for a treat today. Not only do we have a great interview, but you also get to hear Jay's slowly simmering urge to commit bodily violence on me go yeah. throughout the yeah. entire interview beginning to end. Yeah. No. It has nothing to do with Nick. I just had a bad day. Yeah. I, I wish almost that the video we'd release, <laughs> other, other than the fact that I not, did not make myself video ready, just so people could see the number of lingering glares I got from Jay, that some of which went on for a straight minute. Be- uh, before we even got into the questions, there was like a solid like minute-long stare-down happening. I mean, to be fair, I, I threatened to leave a baby to die in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. among, among other things. And with that, why don't we let them listen Not to it? Not even a specific baby. No, just anyone. But yeah, all right, let's go. <laughs> On the line with Joshua Cutchin, co-author of Where the Footprints End. Josh, thank you for joining us this evening. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, a, a lovely uh, slide into autumn that we're doing here. So <laughs> yeah, can't <laughs> we're get there. Can't get here fast enough. I am, I am staring and cursing at the sun's name, hoping it will go away faster. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. I hope it does, and we all die of a nuclear winter just to spite you in particular. <laughs> Thank you, Jay. Sometimes it's warm. Toughen up. <laughs> Sometimes it's cold. Get fat. Okay, anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So our first question is one that we ask all our guests as we are a book club, which is, what are you currently reading, and what sorts of books do you tend to gravitate towards? Well, you know, I've, I've, this topic has actually come up in conversation with a couple of my friends um, lately because I have this thing where when I end up writing so much and doing a lot of reading for the writing, you know, when you're writing nonfiction stuff, you end up reading a lot of stuff that my reading has tapered off a great deal, um, unfortunately. Having said that, um, you know, I've always had a real love of short stories because, you know, if you don't like one of the short stories you can either skip it or power through and keep on going right. so i yep. i i uh, i finally um got the complete uh the complete short stories of uh of agatha christie's poirot and i'm working through poirot right now so that's that's what okay. i'm doing in fits and starts you know sometimes I, I always have it with me and well you know how it is i have my book on me when i don't have a chance to read and then when i do have a chance to read i don't have a book on me (laughs) i completely understand yes that's very cool so what kind of genres do you tend to work towards i know agatha christie is more on the on the mystery side uh what other sorts of stories do you tend to like no i mean i've always really gravitated towards like horror and sci-fi you know i was a monster kid growing up i loved all those old Harryhausen films and stuff like that. So that's what I tend to gravitate towards. I will say that I've had this problem and I'm sure you've noticed it too lately where, you know, you pick up a book and it looks really interesting and you turn it over and it's like book one of the Starbringer saga. And it's like, Oh God, I don't don't know if I can commit to that. You know, (laughs) I really appreciate like the standalone stuff. So, um, so standalone, like horror, folk horror, especially, um, gothic horror and uh just sci-fi you know as a as a teenager i sort of cut my teeth on uh, the short stories of pk dick so yeah anything along those lines 
You know, I just, I end up reading so much nonfiction. There's a lot of interesting nonfiction stuff that's out there, but again, it's just trying to find that balance between mm-hmm. doing this, doing this all the time and doing it for fun too. Yep. Absolutely. Ellen, I mean, as fellow monster kids, yep. I, I think we, uh, we, we share very similar tastes in that regard. And also that's the struggle of trying to read between nonfiction and fiction. It's, uh, it is the ongoing struggle of, of all three of our lives with us reading nonfiction all the time for the show and then trying to squeeze in a good fiction book when we can. Yeah. I mean, and you know, it's, I guess, you know, there's so much to be disturbed about in today's world, but one of the things that kind of, I kind of reflect on that kind of makes me smile a little bit is that, you know, people, more people are reading at this point in history than ever have before. So, and of course they're mostly reading on their phones and they're reading garbage and they're reading, you know, texts to each other, but like, (laughs) You know, the level of literacy, I think, is actually pretty good nowadays. So. Absolutely. And there's oh, just, yeah. But there's just so much, so many books out there just that I want to read, and I just don't have the, don't have the time. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the perennial reader's uh, lament, isn't it? You know? Absolutely. Yep. Well, so on the topic of monsters, uh, so we obviously read your book, Where the Footprints End, which you co-wrote with Timothy Renner. Now, on the, I guess on the topic of books, uh, what led you to, to deciding to work together on the book? I mean, where did the idea come from and how did you split the workout while working on it? Yeah. And I'm sorry that Tim couldn't be here tonight, but I know that he just got back from traveling, you know, as we're entering spooky season that we are, we have a lot more commitments and we're spread a little bit thin. No so. worries oh, at yeah. all. But, um, but I was actually not going to write another book. Um, for a while because this was probably summer of 2018 i had identical twin boys on the way and i said i don't need another book in my life you know which i guess is kind of like the spurned lover saying you know i'll never love again <laughs> like, I, was just, I was just like no i don't need to do this and uh tim comes to me and says let's do the definitive guide to weird bigfoot and uh i had a couple of thoughts right off the bat um and I kind of ended up wrangling it into its current form right as it is right now. Um, Tim, I, th- I think probably wanted to do something a little bit more encyclopedic, but you know, these topics and, and, you know, he, he would agree with me. He's used this metaphor himself. These topics are not tidy enough to be, uh, uh sort of categorized like that. You know, they bleed over into one another and, you know, I mean, whenever I try to figure out the order for, for books that I write, it's like, where do you even start? Because everything seems so much related to other things. So we sort of wrangled it into the, into the current form that it's in. We found our, we found our footing, um, and found something that, that worked. Uh, and you know, I had always, again, as, as a monster kid, right. Uh, the unexplained phenomenon that I gravitated towards the most was, Bigfoot, you know, I mean, I had a passing interest in aliens and, you know, other stuff as well, but like, no, Bigfoot, like that's scientifically, you know, that, that, that's uh, respectable, you know, because someday <laughs> we're going to prove that there's Bigfoot. And, uh, you know, after being involved in this stuff in a serious way for several years, you start to, one of two things happens, I think, and this is not to say that I don't have plenty of friends who are in the flesh and blood camp, but one of two things happens, you either sort of ignore all the problems with Bigfoot's existence, or you start becoming sympathetic to the skeptical arguments. Um, arguments like, you know, where's the dang body? You know, <laughs> it's just there. Yeah. You know, and of course the the you know the the counterpoint that people in the flesh and blood camp will say is uh, is you know well we don't find bear or cougar bodies that often. I'm like yeah, but it's happened since the <laughs> since the yeah. dawn of man. Like people have stumbled upon bear and cougar carcasses yeah. at some point, right? And just, you know, the sort of mental gymnastics that you have to go through to justify the idea that there is a giant monkey roaming around um, the woods. And so I'd always kind of been interested in some of these weird outliers, but it it really was, um, for me at least, part of the reason that I was intrigued by it when Tim brought it to me was that it was really a challenge to me. Like, I, so my latest book is uh, is called Ecology of Souls, and it's it's about trying to reconcile a lot of this reincarnation death connection that you find to you toward, you know, with, uh, between UFOs and death. And like, there's a lot of symbolism there and I just didn't know what to do with it. And that's a, that's a good example, just like where the footprints end of one of my sort of guiding, uh, guiding principles, which is to sort of push where there's mush, like challenge, challenge what you have problems with. And that's been my guiding principle, you know, spiritually, religiously, politically, um, you know, anything, any, I, I really like to sort of challenge and say, where, where are the holes in this, in this idea that I have? So here I am sitting with these really 
sensible skeptical arguments. And I'm also sitting with, you know, the knowledge that I've spoken to so many people who have seen something really genuinely strange. And these are people who, you know, know what bears look like, they know what deer look like. Um, and they've seen something that is, that shouldn't exist. Right. And I'm also sitting there with a lot of these stories that aren't your traditional big monkey in the woods sort of stories. And they do involve things like, you know, orbs of light and these creatures snapping out of existence or into existence. And, and these, uh, you know, uh, the, the namesake of the book, these trackways that just sit in the middle of open fields. So for me and, you know, Tim, I think would resonate with some of this. Um, it's sort of like trying to reconcile those things and still believe in Bigfoot, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that, and, you know, I've always had a comparativists. Um, I've always had a love of comparativism, I guess. And that sort of, um, that sort of way that you can see the echoes of modern phenomena and our modern boogeymen in some of the older folklore as well. That's always been something that really just, brings it home for me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. On I mean that's that continues to be the element of the the research we do that fascinates me the most. Oh yeah, agreed. Uh, and especially when you start noticing, well, Bigfoot looks a lot like UFOs and UFOs looks a lot like ghosts and I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And well, you know, and it's it's the thing that I always come back to is like you you get when you do this enough and you start seeing these things, you start seeing like a farmer in Casey, Iowa who says something that echoes something that was written on a cuneiform tablet <laughs> in Babylon, you know, and it's like either, either, you know, either he's really into Mesopotamian archeology span or he, he experienced something along the same lines that's similar. And I don't know who has it right, the farmer or the, the Babylonian, <laughs> but it seems that some there, that there's some degree of objectivity to what's going on here. That leads us sort of into our next question. Uh, UFO researcher Jacques Vallée once said something to the effect of, I'd be disappointed if in the end the UFO was just little green flesh and blood men. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. How do you think you would react if tomorrow's headline announced the discovery of a flesh and blood Bigfoot species, like some relic of an old hominid, uh, purely of a mundane nature living in the cave systems. Like what would that do to you emotionally? I <laughs> know <laughs> that's, that's, that's a great question. And I've thought about that a lot since then. Um, you know, I'd certainly be, I'd certainly be less disappointed than I would be if the UFOs are piloted by extraterrestrials. I'll say, I'll get that out of the way because I mean, so here's the thing. Um, I chased after I was a champion, I guess of the flesh and blood hypothesis for so long before I actually started looking at this stuff more closely. And and to this day, like if somebody expresses an interest in Bigfoot, the first book that I'll press into their hands is Jeff Meldrum's uh, Sasquatch legend meets science. And this is Jeff Meldrum who was completely on board with the flesh and blood idea because Mm -hmm. he's looking at things like mid tarsal breaks and dermal ridges and stuff that really corresponds quite closely to primate anatomy. So, I mean, you know, in some ways, if, if, if someone shot a Bigfoot in the head tomorrow uh, and, you know, I guess dragged on the White House lawn. That'll be an odd place to get my that. <laughs> <laughs> you always hear about you landing on the White House lawn. I guess if somebody dr- drug a Bigfoot to the Smithsonian house, let's, let's do that tomorrow. Um, part of me certainly wouldn't be surprised um, because I think there could be multiple things at play. Um, and, you know, part of me would be happy because there's a damn answer <laughs> at the end of the day. <laughs> like the, the, the current, the current uh, paradigm that I'm working in really suggests that we're never going to have answers, at least, in, you know, to me. Um, so in that sense, I would actually kind of be relieved. I mean, yeah, I'd be sad that I spent two books with Tim, you know, navel gazing at, <laughs> at all the possibilities of this being something stranger. That'd be a little bit disappointing, but like to see this thing and to actually be able to study it, um, I think would be really important. And I think we'd learn a lot about ourselves as a species. Having said that, um, are y'all familiar with, uh, the work of my friend, Mike Cleland? I have some of the books saved on my wish list, but we haven't gotten around. To okay. Them quite yet. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, M- Mike's a sweetheart. He's an awesome guy. Um, uh, one of the like nicest guys that I've ever met. And, you know, you talk to Mike and he's written books about the connection between UFOs and owls. And there's something there. Like people will see an owl in conjunction with a UFO or there'll be like this really weird up close owl sighting just before a UFO or people will see like three foot tall owls in the wake of UFO encounters. Like the owls 
like basically seemed to be able to peer into people's souls more or less. And the thing is, if you talk to Mike, like Mike's not going to tell you that there aren't real owls, you know, I mean, he, he's an outdoorsman actually first and foremost. So he's ran into, you know, owls his entire life before he put this together. Um, and yet sometimes to quote twin peaks, the owls are not what they seem, you know, mm-hmm. um, owls are not what they appear to be. Um, so I think that there is room if Bigfoot is, you know, if a Bigfoot is killed tomorrow and brought before the authorities or whatever, I think there's room for there to be a flesh and blood creature that somehow this other strangeness um, appropriates that imagery, much as the way it seems to appropriate the imagery of owls and deer and all sorts of other forest things. You know, I think there's some sort of other intelligence that's completely capable of that. And that's admittedly like my way of having my cake and eating it too. But, (laughs) but I think that, (laughs) but I think that, you know, if, if there's a phenomenon that can sort of, hijack the image of the owl it could be able to hijack the image of a giant monkey living in the woods too oh that that's fascinating it actually makes me think i mean imagine if that was true about say ufos imagine if we did we do have extraterrestrials visiting in craft but once they started showing up in our skies they started noticing these other things pretending to be them Eventually, it's going to be humans and flesh and blood supernaturals versus the phenomenon. And the phenomenon <laughs> is going to win because yeah. it is reality. Well, I, mean, I mean, anybody who wants a you know a, a story starter for a sci-fi for a sci-fi novel, like I've always thought this would be a great start. Is like you know the white the UFO lands on the White House lawn and they step out and they're like, oh, we were so glad to finally meet you. We've been watching your lights in the for for, for you know decades, and they go, oh no, no way, you have those too. <laughs> <You know>? uh, <laughs> I always thought that would be kind of cool. I I think that would probably be one of the most, the single most existentially terrifying moments of the mankind's collective existence. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, along a similar line, like there have been uh, some colleagues of mine who have speculated that, you know, if if AI does become fully sentient, like what are you going to do when they say, when it's you and your friend in the room with them, they say, there are five people in the room. (laughs) And it's (laughs) like, oh God, what are they referring to? Yeah. No, thank you. Oh, that's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, on the topic of strangeness, uh, so one of the concepts that we've discussed at length on our show is John Keel's theory regarding window areas, uh, which for our listeners at home are centralized areas within which anomalous activity of all types tends to occur and which he thought were typically mapped to areas of high electromagnetic energy within the Earth. So with that in mind, I pulled an aeromagnetic mapping of Pennsylvania, and nice. I found that I found that as per the most recent survey, there's an area of high electromagnetic energy centered directly under York County, where a large <laughs> number of the events in your book were listed. Uh, so with that in mind, do you think that there's anything to Keel's idea? And if not, do you have any alternative theories about why anomalous activity seems to occur there with such frequency? Um, so I guess the short answer would be yes. I think there's something to Keel's idea, but I think it's, it's really is sort of riddled with problems. Um, you know, first, first and foremost, Keel also sort of talked about these sites possibly radiating out from archaeological centers. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's, there's obviously some thorny issues with like indigenous spirituality there that you could go into if you wanted to. But even beyond that, he was saying, you know, perhaps a 200 mile radius around these different sites. And if you're dealing with something like the Eastern seaboard and the fact that any post-colonial nation is just going to be riddled with graves and such, like you're basically daisy chaining the entire East coast or something, you know, you'd have to get into really remote territory for, for there to not be a window area. But having said that, um, there do seem to be areas that tend to be stranger. Um, and, uh, you know, that sort of York County area is, is one of them. Um, I'm not entirely sure that it's not just Tim having his antenna up at the same time. I, uh, I was, there was an interview that, uh, one of my friends did with, um, Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp on the, anticipation for the hunt for the skinwalker documentary that they did. And I think one of the things that came out in that interview was that like, basically your backyard is a mini skinwalker ranch. It's just that it's not as dramatic as, you know, the Sherman ranch and it's not as, uh, you know, scrutinized. And I think, you know, we have a lot of things that happen to us every day that we sort of dismiss, you know, you catch a shadow out of the corner of your eye and we tend to dismiss that. But I kind of wonder if sometimes it's not something that we've just been conditioned to, you know, ignore or write off. Um, but but Pennsylvania in general is weird. West Virginia is especially weird. Um, you know, uh, parts of Wisconsin, I would put in that too. Florida's got 
a lot of strange stuff going on. Um, so, you know, and, and, and people have sort of bandied about like, well, if it's not the archaeological thing, is it somehow the, the underground, you know, underground water currents or the mineral deposits, or as you so presciently noted, you know, electromagnetism, things like that. And I've heard so many compelling arguments for so many of these different aspects that my current philosophy, and I'll, it's my headcanon, right? <laughs> like, right. I, don't know, I don't know if it works or not, but it's my headcanon is that like, there's a threshold that needs to be met and any combination of these things can meet and exceed it. So, you know, if you're, if you're in the middle of a mass graveyard, then that probably exceeds whatever threshold is needed to pierce the veil. <laughs> but, you know, if, but if you've got like two people buried around there and you have like quartz and you're standing across ley lines and, you know, then, then you, those all add up to, to bring you across the threshold. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but that's just what, again, my head can. <laughs> Well, it makes me think like, what, you know, what if it's almost in a way, what if it's even simpler than that? Like the second that we prescribe that this thing might be the cause of it, because it's a little odd that it, because of that, us starting to do that, more odd things start happening. Kind of like what, you know, we're feeding the phenomenon by giving it a reason to be weird and have all these things happen. I completely agree with you. And I don't know if it, People sort of get upset when I suggest this, but like we we feed into this stuff somehow. Like there's some sort of feedback loop that's that's going on, and people take that and they say, "Oh, they you mean you mean it's all in your head?" And I'm like, "No, it's not. It's not what I mean. I mean that like something about belief can generate these things. I mean, are, are you all familiar with the uh, the Philip experiment? I think I'm, oh, yeah. maybe I mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, yeah. so so yeah. So the Philip experiment, and then like what happens when you get like you know these sort of urban legends going around the place? Like what if it's just like the Philip experiment writ large, mm -hmm. you know, like what if it's, and, and I think that there's been some paranormal media in the past couple of years that has sought to carry out a large scale Philip experiment. That's, as, yeah. <laughs> that's all I'll say on air right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I kind of wonder if that's not what we're seeing in, in some regards. So, and you know, it, it, it does seem that belief plays into this. Yeah. Well, yeah. like all, many, like, you know, it's becoming uh, increasingly the zeitgeist of the time where almost everything is getting connected one way or another back to consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of makes sense. You know, we create, say, these mythic archetypes about graveyards and we create these mythic archetypes about electromagnetic zones and we create these mythic archetypes about underground rivers. Yep. And all of that belief poured in might be just a little bit into each of those things, but on aggregate, like you were saying, you end up getting a Bigfoot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think there's, I, I don't think it's, it's not the silliest thing that I've heard. Right. And right. I think that there might be something to it. And of course, you know, it fits with my biases, but I think that you're, I think you're absolutely onto something there. Hey, I mean, they're, they're, they are increasingly our biases too. So yeah. right there with you. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so speaking of conjuring Bigfoot with your mind, um, <laughs> given the there and gone seemingly liminal nature of a lot of Bigfoot sightings, do you think there is much value in how most flesh and blood Bigfoot hunts are conducted today? And what do you think is the best approach for someone to take if they are like desperate to see a Bigfoot in person? <laughs> Oh, these, these questions are so great. Y'all. Um, oh, thank you. I, I, I'm really, I'm really digging it. Um, so yeah, I, I think that what actually goes on on a real Bigfoot hunt, we're just so conditioned to see all the BS from TV that like, we kind of, we kind of have like mythologized it in our heads a little bit. And you know, there's some, there's some yahoos who go above and beyond. I think that he, here's my main problem. And, and the same problem that I find in ufology too. Like, I'm not saying that, your methodology is unsound. I'm just saying that it's a little bit myopic. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, pursue the extraterrestrial hypothesis all day and night. Talk about propulsion systems, talk about technology, talk about what star system they come from. That's fine. But don't poo poo people approaching it from a different angle. Right. Um, because we don't know where the heck this thing is coming from. Right. So that'll be sort of, I think with the Bigfoot thing too, like I've seen some really compelling I've seen some really compelling ideas about, you know, how to sort of interface in the field using the predictability of primate behavior. And I think that's a very sound standpoint because whatever this looks like, it certainly behaves in a lot of ways like a primate. Like, I think that's a safe, safe thing to say. Like the, again, when I read about the mid tarsal break with Meldrum stuff, it was, it really blew my mind as a kid. Um, so like, I think that like 
if it's quacking like a duck, treat it like a duck and see if you <laughs> right. can't bring the duck in. But uh, at the same time, I think that there should be room for a lot of different uh, perspectives. And there was, oh gosh, I was just talking to somebody about this. I believe that there was a documentary where they actually like went out in the woods and they had people who were approaching it from the flesh and blood thing. And then they gave another guy like, you know, five dry grams of psilocybin mushrooms. And then they had somebody else meditate and they, you know, they just tried, they just tried everything at once. And that's kind of like, you know, without advocating that anyone break the laws in their state or behave um, in a dangerous fashion when out in the woods. I think that like the, the spirit of that sort of approach is, would be absolutely fantastic. And, you know, to get a goat, to get a ghost hunter out there, you know, to get somebody else out there yeah. who's, who's doing something a little bit different. And like, you know, there are a couple of examples that we put in footprints where like people were using ghost boxes on Bigfoot hunts and like, you might get something, you might be your unconsciousness. It might be pareidolia. It might be psychic Bigfoot talking to you. I don't know, but like, we got to try everything right now because the jury is, continues to be out um how how do you want to see a bigfoot you know <laughs> if this is a call if this is a question about ufos or or elves or something i'd probably you know default back to that that uh psychedelic question but like uh, the, th the fact of the matter is you don't get a ton of reports of, of hairy hominids on on entheogens or anything like that and i don't really know why so i would say the best way to like sort of force the hand of these things um would be just to go to an area and um, just just try to be out in the out out in the wilderness as much as you can, uh, because that's when you start getting a sense for like, you know, oh that cairn wasn't there yesterday, mm. or you know this this these the, this could have been a snow snow break of this of this tree of tree limb, but we didn't have any snow. You like you know you really get a familiarity with it. That's a big problem is that people just don't have that familiarity in the outside because we're we're just sort of overloaded when we go out in the wood, yeah. woods and such. On the on that topic, let's say someone wants to go do that. I mean, do you think looking for Bigfoot especially alone is even a safe uh a safe endeavor given the fact I mean, let alone the more mundane dangers of wildlife and the elements, but many of the stories of Bigfoot seem to involve them uh, I mean, acting like jerks to put, put it bluntly. Yeah, no, I mean and and here's the thing, like I think that probably if the if we are dealing with some sort of phenomenon that joins all these different phenomena, it seems to be that it responds really well, unfortunately, to people being, you know, alone yeah. without their electronics, you know, yeah. <laughs> in a vulnerable place. Um, and uh, you know, th this is something that you know, so so you do you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of like whenever I visit a paranormal site and I want to take a rock home, right. We're like, you know, I was just at the TNT area in, in West Virginia and not for Mothman. We were there the weekend before, but I kind of wanted to take away a piece of one of the igloos that had exploded. And I just can never bring myself to do it because you hear these stories about like, you know, taking volcanic rocks from, from, uh, the Hawaii volcanoes, mm -hmm. you know, state park and people like having to send them back because their bad luck gets so bad. And like, my thing is like, you know, I can, I can deal with inviting something quote unquote paranormal into my house. But like the way these things sometimes manifest is like in bad luck. Like yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't handle loved ones getting cancer or financial ruin or, or, yeah, <laughs> or you right. know, literal madness, you know, it's, it's, it's all the, all that sort of stuff that if you ascribe to that sort of idea, I just, I just can't take the chance on that. So I kind of think that, you know, buyer beware when you're going out in the woods looking for anything like this. And yeah. I think, that this is something that um the late Jeff Ritzman, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his body of work, but he um was a great thinker and he passed away a couple of years ago, but he was a great thinker on these topics. And he kind of developed what he considered to be a fairly reliable plan to experience something strange. But he was very clear about, you know, the fact that when you do this, um, you know, you should randomize the times you go out and, you know, look up at the stars and think big questions and sort of keep it as anti-structural as possible. And he said that about 60% of the people that he had do this would report something strange, but he made two things very clear in the conversations that I heard him have about this. Um, number one is that you're going to get something that you don't expect. <laughs> so if you want to see a UFO, you're probably going to see a ghost walk out of the woods. And uh, the other thing that he claimed was that um, 
this thing will eat your lunch if it wants to. And it, you know, it wants your, whatever this is, it wants your relationships. It wants your finances. It wants you to be in as unstable a position as possible, which again ties into that idea of it thriving in these liminal times. Right. Right. Um, um, and, uh, something else where I'm just like, do I really want to do this? Like, I love my family. (laughs) Would it be worth it to see X, Y, Z? So, I think that there are a lot of things to be concerned about. I think a lot of them are pragmatic, as you alluded to. Um, even if Bigfoot's a giant monkey, also pragmatic concerns to be had there. I um, mean, yeah, I'd be terrible. Like just being in a room with a chimp, which is considerably smaller, would probably be the scariest <laughs> right. experience of my life. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. If I was, if I was in, you know, a room with a uh, with a giant anthropomorphic gummy bear, it would still be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Too, you know? yeah. Um. So yeah. So yeah. I think you know, you just gotta be, you just gotta be careful. And I think even though it might diminish your chances, um, you know, safety in numbers, you don't want to bring a group of 50 people, but I think just having a spotter is always good. You know, having a sitter, like, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Gotta have your trip sitter. <laughs> so continuing along that point, given the vast range of reported Bigfoot behaviors intentions, and not to mention the numerous, numerous habitats that they've been spotted in, I mean, you kind of alluded at this earlier, but would it be a mistake to assume that all Bigfoot encounters have roots in a shared phenomenon? And if they are, I mean, how do you uh, rectify, I guess, all of that diversity within their behaviors and habitats? So you kind of do hear these sort of regional tendencies emerging. You know, you hear things about like the Southern Bigfoot being more aggressive in the, in the, uh, the Pacific Northwest Bigfoot being a little bit more like, you know, gentle forest spirits. And you sort of notice these trends and you sort of tease them out over, over time. And there does seem to be some degree of regional distribution with footprint anomalies, like the number of toes and such like that. And, you know, you can sort of map these also onto other places where they're seen worldwide. And if, if we are playing into the way that these things manifest, as I would suspect they do, then it kind of makes perfectly good sense i mean wouldn't you wouldn't you expect bigfoot to be aggressive in the american south and really peaceful and like a hippie in washington state like yeah doesn't that sort of map on with the cultural expectations that explains the skunk ape (laughs) florida man you know (laughs) um but uh and and you know to to a certain degree like i I do think as we just alluded to we were kind of being cheeky but like set and setting you know that's such a big important thing in in alter states of consciousness. And I think that your own set and setting might, uh, might sort of define the type of experience you have. And I know some people who probably probably be like, well, I didn't have any negative feelings before I went into it, but like, it might be like based upon that split second reaction that you have when you're faced with this thing. And that's Mm -hmm. what locks it into being a positive or negative experience. And then from that, you know, all sorts of discrepancies kind of tumble out like you know the the three-toed track thing um is really confounding but it's interesting that they tend to not exclusively this is not true but they tend to appear in places where uh well there could they could be alligator tracks you know so it's so it's sort of like the uh was it George P. Hansen called it the, the self-negating aspect of the phenomenon? It's it, it's always trying to leave a little bit of room for self-doubt and disrepute mm-hmm. sort of in there. Um, you know, and and that's a sort of the confounding thing is that like it's it's consistent enough across cultures in very specific ways that you have to say, okay, there's something to this, but it does seem to have these sort of differences that vary upon percipient um percipient expectations, but also sort of the cultural milieu in which they manifest. Kind of building on that, though, I mean, thinking about uh, their behavior and all these various manifestations of them. I mean, so in UFO lore, I've often we've often commented on the fact that, you know, UFO landings used to occur with some frequency and now suddenly doesn't seem like they're landing anymore. And I was thinking about this while you were talking that some of the stories in your book, as well as some that I've encountered elsewhere, uh, specifically from around the turn of the century, 1800s or so, uh, feature Bigfoot taking somebody mm-hmm. for an extended period of time and spend and have that person spending quite a bit of time in the presence of these creatures. But at least I haven't encountered them. Doesn't seem to be happening as much anymore. So, do you uh, have any ideas about why that behavior may have changed? Why they seem to be taking a step back from us? Well, I mean, I think this might be partially tied into sort of 
the, the resurgence in Bigfoot popularity that you see nowadays. Like I literally can't go out for like 15 minutes before I see a bumper sticker or a yard mm-hmm. art or something Bigfoot related. And I think it's really just the fact that we're so isolated from the outdoors and the wilderness. And honestly, I mean, there may be more human beings in general <laughs> than there have been before, but like, yeah, w- I feel like we stay inside so darn much and we're just not putting ourselves in a place to be vulnerable. Having said that, like you do hear these sort of intriguing cases that come around every now and then. Um, I believe it was in early 2019, uh, Casey Hathaway, uh, was a young man. Uh, I say young man. He, I think he was like three years old and he was in North Carolina and he claimed that, uh, he survived because a bear took care of him. And he survived for like some sort of stupid amount of time. Like, I think it was like a, like a week or something. I, I think I remember that news story now that you're talking yeah, and about it. Yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was Eastern North Carolina. So it's like, it's not like, you know, Massachusetts cold, but it still it was winter and it was rainy and cold. Like, and hypothermia can sit in real easy. So like, oh, yeah. the question is, what, what did he experience? Now, I can see some people being like, you know, oh, well, he must have been describing a Bigfoot, a big monkey that was doing this, right? No, I, I can I can understand that. I, I can sympathize with that. But, like, part of me also imagines, like, that, like, no, he did, like, slip into, like, a Disney fairy tale for, for however long he was <laughs> yeah. there, you know, because that was just the way that he sort of was able to interact with, with whatever this thing is. So, I mean, I guess that's not as explicit as, like, as but actually taking people. Um, but uh but you know it, it, there is some sort of like sort of interaction with with being harbored by bigfoot for a while i feel like too a lot of a lot of the the way that our minds have been made up about whether it was bigfoot taking someone or spirits taking or this or that or I, f- I feel like a lot of that i feel like a lot of that attention has been sort of diffused and refocus on the missing 411 stuff. Um, that's, which a, that's actually I, a very good point. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I'll argue to my dying day that like missing 411 is a paranormal Rorschach test, right? I mean, mm. it's it's whatever your current like passion is, and that's what you see in that data. Yeah. You know? Which is why I, as you know, someone who's written about fairies, say it's obviously fairy phenomena, but <laughs> I realize the irony in saying that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I really do think that like we've almost replaced it we almost almost replaced this sort of beliefs that we would have where we would have sat around the campfire and said, Oh, you know, uh, a book was took someone or, you know, a Shinaqua took someone and we've replaced it with like, Oh, the question mark of missing four one one has taken someone, you know, that's fascinating. Or we're inventing our own monsters and saying Slenderman did it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Slenderman. And, uh, yeah, it was the, the not deer. That's the other one that, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the not, oh, I know the not deer. Fun yeah. fact, yeah. I'm Tumblr friends with the person who came up with the not deer story. Really? Really? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Their name is Rabbit, and they're like, it got way out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I didn't expect this to turn into this, and they're like embarrassed by it but, now. But, but, see, but see, here's the thing. Like, I have I have since heard, like, I've since been in the same room with people who have seen, like, not deer things, and like, so the question is, like, was the person who created it your friend, I guess, or your or your online friend? Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know how that is, like online friend. Um, you know, were they were they un- subconsciously drawing on indigenous testimony because you can kind of find some vague analogs, or were or like are we hyperstitiously generating this stuff? I mean, I, I know it sounds perhaps incredibly naive, but like I feel like we overestimate the number of hoaxes that are out there. Like I, I feel like if if there's nothing to a lot of these things, it's misidentification. It's people who are mistaken as opposed to like just outright outright, you know, BSing. You know? And then even 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 if it wasn't like that we even if it wasn't just potential hoaxes all over the place, there is something to be said about the popularity of these things once they go wild, they go viral or whatever it is, and then people start pouring their energy into it. Now we're looking at things like potentially egregores or tulpas or, oh, or other thought forms. Uh, so, so many of those of those tapes on paranormal caught on camera and stuff now are allegedly of the rake. And I remember... Yeah being 13 and the rake yeah. being a brand new thing and it's just so weird yeah yeah and and you know i i think it kind of provides a little bit of insight into things that we look at 
and are like, how the heck did that happen? Like, why did that seize them? Like, you know, witch trials and dancing epidemics and right. you know, mass hysteria in general. Like, it's almost like a calmer form. It's like mass hysteria on Prozac, I guess. It's a calmer <laughs> form of mass hysteria. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting you, because you're, you're right too. It is like a calmer form of mass hysteria because you don't, we, you don't really hear about entire towns picking up and dancing anymore or anything like that, but you do see everything on the internet go crazy, especially with TikTok now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the mass hysteria and the mass hysteria has been pushed to the internet, right? It's, it's yeah. pushed all these like conspiracy theories and everything like that's where mass hysteria thrives now. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It does. So, returning kind of briefly to the topic of Bigfoot behavior, one of the things that freaked me out the most while we were recording the episode about your and Tim's books was uh, Nick played the uh, the samurai chatter from the Sierra sounds for us, and mm-hmm. I didn't care for that. <laughs> I didn't care for that at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was it was very jarring and very upsetting, and um, <laughs> because it, it sounds like an actual language, which a lot of people mm-hmm. posit that it is. So basically. Do you believe that Bigfoots have a shared culture of their own? And do you feel like your research has given you any glimpses into what that culture might be? Well, let me answer that question in my my people's tongue. <laughs> no! <laughs> I don't care for this! Um, uh, Wonderful. Um, Thank you for that I, very well thought out answer. That was beautiful. Yeah, um, <laughs> I will vanquish you, Nick. <laughs> in, in, in some ways, I'm I'm kind of ambivalent about that question. I mean, not that it's not a good question, but like I just I think it's okay to just be like to look at some of the stuff and go, I have no dang clue. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the idea of an, of the language certainly um, would suggest that we're dealing with some sort of population. Um, and you know, that's that's one of my like. One of my other headcanon ideas is that, like, if Bigfoot is is real, um, you know, I, if there's a conspiracy around, like, hiding flesh and blood Bigfoot, like, it's got to be a conspiracy about the U.S. government trying to safeguard against human rights violations, right? Like, <laughs> if, it's, if it's if it's not a human-like ape and it's an ape-like human, like, that's, I can't imagine what sort of a can of worms they'd be all mixed up in if that was the case. But, um... But like, yeah, the language implies culture and it kind of, you know, Tim wrote about it, uh, it kind of puts you in this like weird space where you're like, what if Bigfoot is like the world's greatest magician species, which is like, so like, if you would have told me that I would even entertain that idea, you know, eight years ago, I'd be like, what the heck are you talking about? But, you know, my good friend, Ren Collier, um, you know, is this the one who said, you know, does it not, not occur to you that that sounds a lot like these barbarous words that you hear in these, like, you know, old Solomonic, you know, magical texts, the sort of made up language that's like transliterated Hebrew with some Syrian thrown in and all this stuff. I'm like, yeah. And that would kind of explain like why it has the shape of language and why there's some recognizable qualities, but why it's still kind of gobbledygook is because mm. that's basically what those were. It's like it was borrowing phonemes and re- repeated patterns um from these languages but sort of reassembling it into this nonsense um that i mean that's fascinating and the idea that bigfoot are ultimately talking in a gobbledygook esoteric language presumably to cast spells is yeah. uh probably one of the most mind-boggling <laughs> thoughts i've allowed into my brain today <laughs> yeah. i, I mean and it's a fun idea if nothing else but uh but yeah and and like there's something that I I kept on feeling like there was some sort of thread that I could have tugged on here and I didn't tug on it, but, you know, we talked about altered states of consciousness in general. And, and you know, this kind of goes back to Terrence McKenna's stoned ape theory. Um, not to be confused with the stone tape theory uh-huh. <laughs> in parapsychology, but the stoned ape theory, which is the idea that, um, you know, our, our ancestors would have been following the herds of aurochs across the plains and they would defecate and on this, you know, fecal matter would grow psilocybin mushrooms, which we would eat and in certain doses would enhance visual acuity without intoxicating us and would also stimulate Brokaw's area, which, you know, inspired sort of glossolalia. And when Terrence would, you know, do these lectures, he'd be like, and so the end result would sound a bit something like this. It's not me. You know, <laughs> sort of like do these. It's basically like, you know, speaking in tongues, yeah. which circles back around again to like the, the gobbledygook spirit channeling sort of language um but you know there's some sort of thread on there that i just didn't feel like it was the appropriate place to tug on um 
but it does sound like it does sound like the sort of spontaneous glossolalia that you can make up if you're in that space. Um, you know, the thing that really impresses me the most about the samurai chatter, which, you know, we should really come up with a better term than that, but absolutely, it is what it is, um, is that, and of course we're going to be wading into some, you know, offensive language here, but like the way that people describe it is always, you know, it's always like they're trying to describe the same thing with a different set of cultural touchstones. So one Mm -hmm. person said like, you know, someone who was deaf and Amish trying to speak Russian backwards or something. I'm like, okay, well that's a very colorful way to describe it, but that's kind of like, I can see how that is is an attempt to describe that same thing. Um, And so, you know, you'll hear people sort of using just these different ways of trying to describe what they're hearing. And it, it seems without saying, you know, Oh, it sounded like a guy from an Akira Kurosawa movie, which you you see a couple of times. Like it's always these inventive new ways of describing it, that it's always the same. Like, you know, Donald duck, but 50, you know, 50 decibels lower. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. That like, that's still describing the same thing in a lot of ways. And that that's what I find endlessly fascinating about it. Like it's just the variations that people describe that still sound like they're describing the exact same thing. Absolutely. I'm not going to be able to get the idea of Bigfoot speaking in tongues just randomly in the woods out of my head now. No, no, not the, and and now I kind of want to go into the woods and scream gibberish and see if it screams back. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't know which is worse, like Bigfoot speaking in tongues at you in the middle of the woods, or like Bigfoot crying like crying like a baby in the yeah. middle of the woods. Like I don't yeah. know which is worse. The second one to me, yeah. hands yeah. down, the second. <laughs> if there's a baby crying in the woods, it's either a trap or that's a dead baby because I'm not helping it. Oh. <laughs> Nick. <laughs> Don't disagree. Don't disagree. <laughs> moving on before Jay bludgeons me to death with a statue. Oh, um, I'm so tired. So you you might be a little sick of this question, uh, as I imagine you probably hate to get it. However, we have to ask. So if you absolutely had to plant your feet and right now make a guess as to the ultimate nature of the squatch, what do you think you'd say? I mean, can I steal Tim's explanation? You know, I mean, I mean, he's not he, here to defend he, himself. Sure, he, <laughs> he he articulated it more elegantly than I ever think I could have, uh, and I'll sort of add some garnish on top of my own. But um, I do believe that something resembling the union collective unconscious is as objectively real as something like that can be, right? And uh, and I think that archetypes are real. Um, I've seen them my entire life. I've sort of embodied them in times of my life. And I didn't realize it until I look back on a, on a portion of my life and like, Oh hell, I was being the trickster or, you know, Oh hell, I was being you know, the initiate or something. You know, you just see these things and you're like, I behaved in all these ways. And I feel like that's kind of like the source code of the universe in a lot of ways, if you want to be sort of reductive about it. And I think among those archetypes, um, there is a wild man archetype. And I think that, under some set of conditions and I have no idea what the heck they are. Um, I think that it manifests in a lot of ways. And I think perhaps the rarest way that it manifests is as a giant, hairy, you know, monkey person in the woods. Um, but I think between that and absolutely nothing happening, you have all sorts of other phenomena, which are highly suggestive, like just the big footprints manifesting of their own accord or, uh, obviously in conjunction with that final manifestation as well, but like perhaps of their own accord or, you know, these other class B reports, the, the wilderness guys phenomena that I mentioned in the book, throwing rocks, wraps in the forest, things like that. I feel like those are all sort of precursors. And it's interesting. You can like, you can find plenty of stories where people, you know, bam, see a, see a Bigfoot, but there are also plenty of these stories where these little bits and bobs sort of like, tend to tend to ramp up and tend to scale up over the course of a sighting. And then it like, it culminates in the, the giant Bigfoot. So I think that this can be a lot of different things, but I think that it sort of does evolve on a spectrum of like most mundane to most fantastic and whether or not that was what we would have called a forest spirit. Um, you know, I'm sort of ambivalent on that. Um, but I, I, I suspect that, I would be more I would be more willing to put my money on there never being a body than I would on someone, you know, killing Bigfoot before I die. Yeah. Um, I mean I'm pro- I- I pro- probably willing to bet my house on it at this point. Like, you yeah. know. 
I mean, I, I feel similarly. There's a, uh, something that the three of us have talked about uh, extensively. What if the mystery is the point? Yeah. And the point is not the truth. The point oh, is love that. the questing for the mystery. Exactly. No, I, I absolutely love that. And that's, that's, that's a very almost Patrick Harper, George P. Hansen kind of approach to it. But like, I, I mean, well, it's that Marshall McLuhan thing, right? Like, you know, the medium is the message, you know? Yep. Yep. Thank you for that. Now, going on to the next topic of, uh, well, of paramount importance to us and the greatest mystery of our lives, death. So <laughs> we want to ask about your new book. So you recently wrote a two-part book, The Ecology of Souls, A New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal. And as we've yet to have the pleasure of reading it, we were hoping that you could give us a 30,000-foot look at what led to the writing of that book and what our listeners can look forward to finding within its chapters. Well, take your time because it's <laughs> it's a it's a chunky one. Um, so I had some. I mean, as we all did, but I had some some uh, grieving to go through towards the end of 2020. Um, obviously, that carried through for other people, but like there had a lot of life changes, and it was it just felt like it was time to tackle this thing, which has been sort of unfolding in the back of my mind for the past like five or six years, which is. Uh, there does seem to be some sort of connection between all these phenomena and death. And the question that I really wanted to write about was the UFO connection, you know, in the wake of publishing with uh, communion in 1986, Whitley Strieber uh, had his wife and uh, answering a lot of the correspondence and collecting it and sort of like taking notes. And one of the things that she noted that really stuck with him was she wrote of this has something to do with what we call death after she were getting all this correspondence from these experiencers. So that's like such a, such a, an elegant insight. Like I mm -hmm. wanted to unpack that. And then there's, you know, one of my co most common counterpoints to people who say that we're dealing with little green scientists is, you know, okay, well then why do people with a surprising degree of frequency report seeing dead loved ones and, you know, just, just dead people in general aboard these crafts or during periods. Oh, so you just so happen to be visited by little green scientists at the same time period that you saw your, your dead father, you know, it's just right. like, what's going on here. So I wanted to unpack that, but as I did it, it sort of turned into this like snapshot of my current thinking. And uh, I realized that you had to bring in ancient monuments and things like window areas, like we were talking about. And uh, you know, you know, a lot of these forms of shamanic in initiation and ancient mystery cults and, you know, the fairy thing like that's, you know, y'all mentioned Valet earlier, but like, this is, this is the association that I think kind of haunts passport to Magonia in the yeah. background. And that's, that's, you know, that's, that's a, that's a foundational text for my work, but at the same time, like Valet did a great job of showing, well, you know, this modern UFO phenomenon looks a lot like these older um, sort of fairy, um, sort of fairy myth mythologies that you see from Western Europe. But he, he left a couple things on the table. One of the, one of which was like, you know, the worldwide fairy phenomenon that, re that it represents, but also the fact that if you look around the world, so many of these cultures equated, you know, fairies with the dead, like the fact that, that, that the fact that they might be like little elemental spirits tending to gardens and stuff is a very late 19th century theosophic sort of thing. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll tackle this. I'll just write a little bit of a preamble and then I'll UFO thing. And that little bit of a preamble turned into its own book. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's a little bit remedial if people are super familiar with this, but it's also necessary to say, you know, because I end up going to some really weird places uh, in book two and uh, without book one, it kind of doesn't <laughs> seem as justified as it, as it could. So that's kind of the thumbnail sketch. Um, but it, like I said, it just, it, I, I know a new mythology of death and the paranormal sounds super pretentious, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, that's what it became for me. It like became this holistic, surprisingly to, to a surprising degree, holistic sort of view where I can make all of this work in a way for me. And I don't know if it's objectively true, it may not work for everybody. Your mileage may vary, but like, it helps me to nest a lot of outliers that I never had any idea that I would ever be able to sort of make fit together as a puzzle piece. Well, and that's fascinating. Yeah, really. That it's fa it, it, the book sounds incredible. Yeah, we we definitely are going to pick it up at some point. We're yeah. ready for a good chunky slog. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, now that's now that said, I mean, it's interesting just because uh, we recently did cover uh, the communion saga as well as uh, a new world for our summer series, and we had very similar uh, conversations about mm -hmm. how does this relate to the afterlife, to death, and 
you're right. Once you start looking at it through that lens, if it becomes much easier, at least in my mind, to connect the various elements of the phenomenon all together within some sort of suggested framework. Yeah. yeah, and and and, and there, there's a lot of room for criticism of this particular idea. Um, you know, death is such a mystery; it kind of becomes this umbrella topic. Like, I think that's a fair criticism. Uh, and you know, there is another strand of criticism that would say that you know, Whitley sort of fist champion this meme more than anybody else. Um, he gets his own dang chapter in the book because he's talked about this connection more elegantly than anybody. But um, you know, at the same time, you find it in places that don't really have that sort of contaminant of him at the center. Um, so, and, you know, obviously like it was just mentioned in passing and communion, um, the sort of death connection. And, and obviously a lot of this correspondence, a lot of it, Hauser Rice's Fondren library uh, archives now the archives yeah. for the, of the unexplainably or archives, of the impossible archives of the unexplained. I can never remember. Um, but a lot of that was talking about these sort of explicit death connections without really putting two and two together about how much it would later influence Willie because he hadn't written those other books yet. So yeah, there's something to it. Um, and that's as, that's as comfortable as I'll say, there's something to it and it works for me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, it's really easy with this to, to lapse into that sort of evangelical demon, demon, uh, angel thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I I'm proud to say that even though I'm a Christian, no one who has read it has said that it seems like it's written by a Christian. Like it tries to be very, very objective and very like, let's just look at this on its own terms as opposed to shoehorning in, you know, my own beliefs. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I mean, I guess if you really wanted to be super reductive, you just, you'd say that it's a spiritual approach to the UFO question, but it's like this archetypal soup kind of thing too. I don't know. I just, yeah, it's, 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 the most personal thing that I think I've written. I, I'm rambling about it. Sorry about that. No, no, no worries no. at all. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. That was awesome. All right. So our last question should be the easiest one. What's next for Josh and where can people find your work? Oh, man. So I, I have a couple of things that I've got going on. Um, I have decided to not write for a while. and <laughs> I'm going to stick to it this time as opposed to last time. Well, honestly, like honestly, with uh, with ecology, I could probably just walk right away after this if i wanted to but i don't want to because i've made so many friends um so i'm going to be doing uh i'm going to try be trying to shift to more experiential stuff than to actually going back out there and experiencing some some things because it's been a while my my cup is like only a quarter of the way full in that regard so i'm going to try to go out there and and, and touch the touch the elephant i guess as it were <laughs> um so a little bit of that um I've got some uh, interesting YouTube stuff that's in the pipeline that I can't completely talk about right now. Okay. Um, All right. But uh, there's going to be a little bit of that. And, um, you know, I have some super, I had, I, I had this, this sort of vision of a, like a, of a vision board, like pop into my head the other day. And I've got this giant pipe dream that I don't know if it'll ever come true, but the moment it seems like a reality, I will let everyone know. <laughs> it's <laughs> probably about three years off. We're kind of taking this time to do some restructuring in my household and we do things so it's kind of like i don't know maybe it's a good time for me to actually experience some stuff because we're all liminal but uh, yeah absolutely <laughs> but, but uh you can find out you can keep up to date on all those new projects at joshua kutchen.com that's j-o-s-h-u-a-c-u-t-c-h-i-n.com and you can find links to all the interviews and any news that's worth knowing is is to be found there and I will put links to all to link to your website and any socials or anything like that in the show notes as well. I appreciate it. All right. Well, I think that's it for the night. So thank you so much, Josh, for your time. We had a great time. We yes. hope you did as well. Yes. We'd love to have you back on again someday. Oh, this was fantastic. Thanks so much, y'all. Oh, thank you. 